Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marcellero. And this week, my guest is Professor of Astronomy, Mario Urich. Mario, welcome to the show. Um, thank you, John. Good to be here. For the listeners, Dr. Mario Urich is a professor of astronomy in the Department of Astronomy at the University of Washington and a senior data scientist fellow at the University of Washington's eScience Institute. He holds a PhD in astrophysical sciences from Princeton University. Pretty neat. All right. Well, as you know from maybe listening to some of these shows, I have a lot of astronomers on, and I'm endlessly fascinated to hear about how you got interested in astronomy when you were young and how that led to a career in astronomy. Tell me how it all started. So I think uh, it, it comes down to reading and, and watching science fiction uh, as, as I was a kid. Um, if, if there's one person to blame for you know, my initial interest, it's probably you know, James T. Kirk. Um, <laughs> many of us have watched Star, Star Trek and the original series and then did the movies. Um, and, and, and that's, that's kind of how you start. You want to go to space, you want to explore space, and as you learn more about it, um, you really realize that one of the best ways to do that uh, from the ground is um, is with astronomy. I had the same experience watching uh, Star Trek. Only my hero was Mr. Spock. Oh yes, I, I agree. I agree. I love the way he could do warp uh, calculations in his head, and that was inspirational. Yeah, definitely. Uh, any science fiction uh, authors come to mind, or was it mostly television science fiction? Oh, uh, I, it, it really was Star Trek, and, I, and now that I think about it, I haven't thought about this for like 20 years, but it was the original, like the, the first movie was probably one of the first um, science fiction movies that I've seen as, as a kid, um, and that left an impression, I started reading, um, so I've, I've, I've read um, Isaac Asimov and, and, and Arthur Clarke, like those, those oh, two yeah. were, yeah, as a kid I was... Um, I went through you know, all the foundation series and and um, robots and um, with, with Clark. Um, um, I think I read basically everything that they had in the library. So that's um, th- I think those two are my my biggest influences. Yeah, same here. I remember I would add Heinlein to that list. But, I've uh, never read Heinlein. Interestingly enough, yeah. Interesting. Uh, so what what brought you to the U.S.? You grew up in Croatia, is that right? Yeah, well, I, I grew up in Croatia. I I went to college there, um, did my physics degree there, and then um, I, I, you know, I, I I was doing astronomy as a hobby almost forever since um, since um, elementary school. But I always thought I was going to be a particle physicist, and and then when I finally finished, you know, my physics education, when I got to my fourth year in college, I realized. Well, this hobby of mine is actually quite interesting, and you know, sounds more interesting than being one of the three thousand people in CERN um, tweaking the particle <laughs> detector. Um, Did you have and, a telescope? Uh, I I didn't at the time. Well, it depends on how you look at it. I didn't have a telescope um, of of my own, but I did spend all my summers and and then winters at at an observatory at an amateur-run observatory in, in Croatia and Vishnian, where we searched for asteroids. Um, so I kind of considered that being my, my telescope, and I, I wrote a lot of the software for it, and we found our asteroids with it. Um, and it was, I think that's really when I decided, well, this is, you know, I always thought about that as a hobby, but this is what I should really do. And 
And then once, once that happened, um, you know, there are only a few places in the world where, where you can kind of do um, really cutting edge astronomy. And uh, so I decided to, to go to school to, to one of those places, uh, apply to, to a couple places in the U.S., a couple in Europe, and got into Princeton. And that's, um, you know, as they say, the rest is history. You got your Ph.D. in astrophysical sciences at Princeton. Tell me about your thesis. I'm curious. Um, my thesis was on, on extrasolar planets. And uh, this is, it's kind of an interesting story because I, I always thought I was going to be a theorist. So, um, you know, like pen and paper and computers. Mm-hmm. Um, my thesis was on, um, back in the day, uh, extrasolar planets were discovered just a couple of years um, kind of before I, I, um, I, I got to Princeton. Um, so I got there. Uh, oh, this was way before Kepler. Yeah, this is um, 2002 was when I arrived to Princeton. I think there were about 50 or so planets known at the time. What technique was used to discover those? Just ground-based uh, eclipses? Um, it was radial velocities. So you would look at a spectrum of a star, and you'll you'll just you just see it wobble, like kind of go back and forth, and that's because the planet is tugging on it. Um, and and there were about yeah, between 50 and 100, I forget exactly, um, known. And they were all very strange. They didn't look so anything wobbling. like Wobbling. I mean, was that forward and backward? Is that a shift in the spectral lines? Yes, yes, exactly. Oh, okay. um, and, and And then Kepler revolutionized the, the whole field again um, uh, a couple of years later with looking at the eclipses. Um, but what I was trying to explain is why these planetary systems are are so different compared to ours, and the the interesting bit there was that as as I was doing that, I uh, I got acquainted with another thing that was happening at the same time, which was the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, one of the first big digital sky surveys um, um, ever, and that was just happening at Princeton at the same time, and. So as I was finishing my thesis, I, I kind of realized, wow, this is you know paradigm changing the way these surveys work and and what they can what they can do, and and started working on that as well. So I have I kind of did two parallel things for for about two years, and my thesis ended up being on on exosolar planets. But uh, but ever since I've been working on on big data and and large surveys. Did you find any pattern in the formation of solar systems? Seems to me like they're random. You had big gas planets up close, big gas planets out far, you got rocky planets close in, you got rocky planets everywhere. There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to the formation. Would, uh, what would you have to say about that? Yeah, there, there, there is some, uh, but as, as you rightfully point out, there's, there's huge diversity. And what we tried to explain, what I tried to explain in my thesis was, like, why... Did these planets, um, did their eccentricity, so basically how, how elongated their orbit is, uh, why is it elongated the way it is, the, 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 the way we saw in the data? And the interesting thing was that if you, if you just, you know, if you set up the systems in such a way that a planet gets ejected, that there's what we call the dynamical instability. So you start with a lot of planets in a planetary system and you let them kick them, kick each other around a bit, and a few fly out and so forth. The ones that remained looked exactly like what we saw in the data. 
So one of the predictions was that there were going to be free-floating planets out there. Um, and I think they uh, just saw a, a press release a couple of days ago, I think, that one, one was found. So that, that was quite, uh, quite interesting to see. It sounds like a science fiction story. Here you are, you have a planet. Everybody's having a good time rotating around the sun, and all of a sudden there's some cataclysmic gravitational convulsion, and you go hurtling out of the solar system. The sun gets smaller and smaller. Yeah, it very much <laughs> is. It very much well, is. I hope that never happened to anybody. Yeah. Well, the, the funny thing is it may have happened in the solar system. Um, the, one of the leading ways, uh, one of the leading theories to explain, um, you know, where, where the um, small bodies in the solar system are and why the moon looks the way it does is that exactly this kind of event happened mm. uh, some four billion years ago. And we, we may have had another planet that got ejected. Before uh, there was any intelligent life, thank goodness. Yeah, yeah, fortunately for us, yes. Tell me about your other research interests. I read that you're interested in galactic structure and right. big data. Yeah, so so the, the kinds of um, things that I do are, are sort of at the intersection of, of computer science and astronomy um, and big data analysis. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious about what we can find out from these big databases that telescopes um, collect these days. Um, so I kind of like to explore. I like to find new things. One of the things we did with, uh, with Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which was a big survey some sort of started some 20 years ago, was to map the galaxy, so map the Milky Way. Uh, we, we built... Uh, one of the most detailed maps of the Milky Way at the time um, measured essentially is that it's optical size. or it's it's optical yeah so we with the way it worked uh, SDSS imaged about half a billion stars and so we'd know for each star its position in the sky and its brightness uh, and its colors and from that we could deduce roughly how far it is. And then you can imagine this, you know, half of you have half a billion stars and you can really build a three-dimensional map now where they are. And later on, we added their motions as well. The number keeps uh, rising. And when I was a graduate student, it was 100 billion and then went up to 400 billion. And now we think there's, what, 500 billion stars in the Milky Way? Oh, I, I think, you know, it, it's, I think all those numbers are probably correct given our knowledge. Uh, I think there are some uncertainties there that it could be. You know, I, I my kind of rule of thumb number is you know 200 billion, and then give or take 50 percent, uh, because most of these stars are actually going to be in uh, very low mass stars, and those are very difficult to see. So it's kind of hard to tell how many of them are there in the first place. Um, yeah, how but, far uh, can we, we see we, out optically? Because it doesn't uh, dust get in the way. It depends on, oh, I see, uh, in the Milky Way, it depends on really on how bright the star is. Um, and with very bright stars, um, we can get out to, you know, what we say um, um, optically, um, uh, let's say three or four kiloparsecs, so that would be like 10,000 um, light years or 10 to 15,000 light years. Okay. Uh, in, in the plane of the galaxy, if you're looking out of the plane, um, you can go out to you know, 15 or 30 kiloparsecs, um, and that's uh, about 100,000 light years. So do we have to extrapolate then what we can see based on the sampling of the nearby? Yeah, pretty much. So we, with SDSS, we saw only half a billion stars, right, out of, let's say, 200 billion in the galaxy. But you kind of see a, a patch 
of the Milky Way around us, but quite a sizable patch all the way to the galactic center. And then you, you look at what the other galaxies look like and assume that you know, Milky Way is probably not that different. And then based on that, extrapolate what the rest looks like. You know, recently I've seen some photos in the sky and telescope of what the Milky Way looks like if you were, say, you know, 50 kiloparsecs above it looking down. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any uh, URLs or references to the listeners being able to take a look at one of those photos? Oh, um, ours were... If you send it to me, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Yeah, there are there are a couple of um, of images we have in this uh, of, of like this this work that I was talking about that that might be interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating to see what we think the Milky Way would look like if you could have a bird's eye view. Very cool. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. So it's a barred spiral, right? Yeah, it is. And the, the other fascinating thing about it is it's it's not just a barred spiral itself. There are many smaller galaxies around it that are either falling into the Milky Way, merging with it, or being shredded by the Milky Way. I think that was one of the big discoveries you know, over the last two decades, that uh, Milky Way is still kind of eating up smaller galaxies around it. And mm -hmm. we can actually see that now. Cool. Well, we've come to the end of the first half of the show. It's time for a uh, short commercial break. Folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds. I'm chatting with the Professor of Astronomy, Mario Urich. We'll be back in a minute. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. Built using the most up to date hardware and next generation network backbone, Linode allows users to comply with in country data protection requirements while taking advantage of all of Linode's technology and tools. Featured are native SSD storage, a 40 gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines. You'll be able to deploy and maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and back up your cloud. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud service computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today with a $100 free credit for listeners of Background Mode. You can find all the details at linode.com BGM. And Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, use your $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. Visit linode.com bgm and click on Create Free Account button to get started today. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with Professor of Astronomy at University of Washington, Mario Urich, right? That's right. So I want to spend the second half of the show on the LSST. I didn't realize until recently that it had been renamed. It's kind of hard to keep from saying LSST, though. So should, what oh, should I do? Should I do Vera Rubin or LSST? Oh. Yeah, I, I completely understand that. I've been working on this for in the last um, at least 10 years, and mm -hmm. it's hard for me to remember. It is. Um, it's, 
it's 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 also a bit complicated because the, the observatory itself has been renamed to Vera C. Rubin um, Observatory, and you know, Vera Rubin's been one of the, the you know, uh, seminal people in, in astronomy who's, who's really, I think, proved that dark matter is out there and, and is a thing. Um, the, the whole observatory is now renamed after Vera Rubin, uh, but the the survey that that observatory is going to conduct has has now been named the Legacy Survey of Space and Time, which continues to spell LSST for uh, for us who cannot uh, forget the acronym. Um, large so, so Survey Telescope is what it started out, right? Yeah, that's right. It started as a large synoptic survey telescope, uh, which uh, which is what happens when uh, when a committee um, gives a, gives a name for a project. Uh, <laughs> Tell me about the telescope. Tell me about the design of the optics and the mount, and when it's going to see first light. It's a it's a eight point four meter telescope. Um, so it's a, it's a three mirror system. The uh, the the, the eight point four meter primary is is um, actually quite unusual um, because it's it's almost like a torus. Um, the, the central hole is is quite large. It's a it's a couple of meters in diameter. Um, so the and and the reason for it is the way I think of this telescope is it's, it's a huge wide angle lens. Um, it's very stout um, the, the whole telescope, so it can move quickly. Um, it can it can take a snapshot of the sky and then move to the next place in the sky where we want it to be and settle and take another snapshot in five in five seconds. How quickly so, is how quickly is quick? Like a few degrees um, per second? Yeah. Um, it's what we call slow and settle time is five seconds. And in in that time, it uh, it crosses, I think, about um, six or seven degrees. So it would have to, um, I think the accelerations are up to seven degrees per second, per second squared. Um, wow. wow. Yeah. It, it's and it's quite amazing if you think about it. This is like 250 tons of steel and glass that are that are moving around. Um, so for the listeners, most telescopes have a very small field of view because of their optical design. Mm-hmm. A few minutes of arc, but uh, I read that this telescope has a very large field of view, many degrees. Ten, yeah, ten square degrees. So the you know, moon is a quarter of a square degree, um, kind of in, in in area. So it's it's quite a big. And that image is captured with a very large CCD. It's like three gigapixels. It's three point two gigapixels. Um, so it's a it's a camera that's about three feet across. Um, so if you think of your cell phone cameras, there you can barely see the lens. This is something that's three feet across. It has um, one hundred eighty nine CCDs in there, and when you add up all the pixels, it's three point two gigapixels. Compare that to your iPhone, which is twelve megapixels. Yeah. yeah. How much does a CCD like that cost, can I ask? Uh, the whole camera is $160 million. Just so, cameras, or not not the telescope, but just the CCD. Just, a, just camera, that's right. Um, so it's, it's the CCDs and then the housing where they're housed, and there's a refrigeration system. So there's, but yeah, you're right. The, the, the vast majority are the CCDs. Um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the number for just CCDs is, but the whole camera is 160. Wow. So we've got this 240-ton, 8-meter telescope slowing around the sky. What is the mission of the Vera Rubin Telescope, the LSST? It's, it, 
it's it's make the movie of this guy uh, or another way to think about it is turn this guy into a database or download this guy into a database the idea is um, you if you image the entire sky every couple of days and continue doing it and you process those data as they arrive um, and and store the results in a database which means you know there'll be tables in a database saying this object at this position this object was observed and here are its characteristics and here's a little image of that object if you do that you enable a wide variety of science everything from discovering killer asteroids to understanding the um the the, the nature of dark energy so rather than every group building their own telescope which would be extremely costly with one machine you can kind of index the sky, if you will, and provide a database for everyone to use. Processing all that data that it collects every night it must be, in order to you know, do something useful and then move on to the next night, must require some sort of supercomputer. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating problem. That's something that I've, I've worked on uh, for, for about 10 years. Um, the computational sheer size is a problem, um, but also the need to operate um, entirely autonomously. So everything has to be automatic. If, if something goes wrong with the imaging, the software needs to recognize that and either fix it or flag it because there's just so much data coming in that you cannot stop every time something goes wrong and ask a human to look at it. There just aren't enough of us. So it's a, it's a really interesting problem, both algorith algorithmically and just from the perspective of raw power. So the telescope is in the mountains of Chile, right? Mm-hmm. Does that mean it's completely unmanned, or are there people at elevation manning the telescope doing other routine maintenance tasks, or is it all by itself? There's there's always someone up there, but I think it's uh, it's going to be a fairly small crew. Um, the, the telescope is being constructed right now, and operations will start in, in about a, two years or so. Um, there's always someone up there in case something goes wrong. You, you want to have a person that can push the big red button and stop everything. But um, everything is done remotely and usually autonomously. If everything, when everything works as planned, you start at the beginning of the night and just you know watch the screens for how things are going. Is it fully built by now, or is it still under construction? It is still under construction. Um, the The observatory is almost finished, so the, the building. Um, the mirrors are finished. The camera just was just completed and, and took its first uh, first image um, in, in the lab. Um, um, but as everyone, we were affected by by COVID, um, and I just heard uh, that uh, last week the, the crews were allowed back to the summit to to begin working again. So there must be so, a lot of shakedown work, getting the algorithms working, make, checking out the telescope before it really moves into production, right? Yeah, definitely. We're, we're going to start that next year. Uh, now, all that's going to likely be delayed by half a year or so, um, maybe perhaps a whole year. But yeah, that's we're still looking at uh, 2023 likely to, to start operations. When we were chatting before the show, you mentioned a very interesting term that intrigues me regarding the LSST, and that's planetary defense. Can you elaborate on that? So one of the things that um, that we're going to do with LSST is uh, we will be taking an unprecedented survey of objects in the solar system. So we, we, we know about the planets. 
but there are also millions of, of smaller bodies of asteroids um, zipping through the solar system, and some of them come incre- come very close to Earth, and some of them actually impact. And the, the most famous or infamous case was uh, the, the asteroid that um, did away with the dinosaurs 60 million years ago. Um, and what we'd like to know is, if there is there something like that that's hurtling towards us that we don't know about, um, that um, that you know, could potentially cause uh, significant damage or even end of civilization as we know it. And so with LSST, we're, we're, we're looking to, to catalog um, about 10 times as many of such objects as are known today. Um, our, our goal is something like 60 or 70 percent of all asteroids larger than um, about 100 meters uh, that we're going to discover them with LSST. And yeah. Let me ask you a question I'm curious about. Mm-hmm. So the solar system's been around for a long time and it's kind of settled down a bit and Jupiter's kind of cleared out uh, the region around the Earth. So um, do we think that there's probably no asteroid that's big enough to damage the Earth still circling out there? And is the biggest threat really more of a comet from the Oort cloud? Or do we suspect there could be an asteroid still lurking? I, I think it's um, it's I think asteroids are, are are likely still a bigger threat. Um, the really? you, you, you're right that um, uh, yeah, this is one of those things where, where where the answer is sometimes it depends. It depends on the size. Um, you know, an, an object of the size of um, I don't know kilometer or more, we've cataloged almost all of those. And it's it's unlikely that there's one heading our way in the next hundred years. Um, that's that's that big. So that's that's um, that's one called Apophis, right? Right, but but that one, you know, it's it's not on a collision course. Um, you know, we know it comes close, but it it's it's unlikely that it will actually impact over the next. Is there any the chance that Apophis could be gravitationally perturbed by accident by one of the major planets and change course? Or do we think mm. that's unlikely? That would be that would be unlikely because uh, we, we can simulate how it how it moves and um, you know, planets are moving in a fairly orderly fashion and mm-hmm. uh, yeah Apophis is I think Apophis has moved from uh, being a uh, an ob- a scary object from a planetary defense point of view to now being an opportunity to study these kinds of objects because it comes close to us. Um, what about a but, random? Yeah. What about a random comet from the Oort cloud? Could uh, LSST pick that up in time? Yes, d- definitely. Well, uh, in time. Uh, if, if you didn't say that, I would say yes. We should pick them up. <laughs> the, I mean, in the, time the, to worry about it. <laughs> right. The, now, the, there's there's good and bad news about the Oort cloud. Um, if there was a comet heading right for us from the Oort cloud, it's it's almost certain we wouldn't be able to do much about it. Um, just because it, it, you know, it's it's moving fast, and it'll be will detect it probably around somewhere on Jupiter, and a few months later, it's it's at, in the vicinity of Earth, and you, you really you can't do much. We don't have the technology to react in that time scale. Um, on the bright side, the the likelihood of that happening is very low, um, because you know, these objects come in fairly not very frequently and then you have to really be unlucky for it to be on your way so we're talking about an event that's you know maybe once in in every few tens of millions of years um 
the, the ones that where LSST, that LSST is really focused on are, are asteroids that, uh, near-Earth asteroids that, that are already around here that are likely smaller because if they're bigger, we would have detected them. Um, but if but they could still cause a lot of damage. A hundred-meter so asteroid could be a real threat, even though it wouldn't destroy the planet. It could yeah, destroy a city. Definitely. We, we call that 100-meter ones are, are continent-wide destruction. And, um, you know, even even something that the size of you know, a few tens of meters, that if it impacted over a city, that would cause you know, huge direct damage and then huge indirect um, huge, huge direct casualties and then huge indirect damage uh, when you take economy into account and so forth. Do we have so the capacity to intercept a 10-meter asteroid that would, that would be really bad news for a city? Well, it, the capacity is being developed. Um, there's a mission called the DART that NASA is planning uh, that will go and, and, and collide with an asteroid to understand um, you know, how well we can nudge them uh, oh. slightly. And, and, and understand you know, what to do there. But our goal with LSST is to detect these kinds of you know, potential impacts maybe 40 or 50 years before they happen. Because you know, if we detected something that's going to impact in two years, it's unlikely there, there'll be much we could do. But if we detected something that's 40 years out, that's enough time to start planning to, to build a mission um, and you know, to go do something about it. So that, that's kind of our goal, to, to, to try to find cool. harder things out there that, that will impact decades from now. Cool. Well, I want to get back to LSST data. So how uh -huh. much data is collected every night, do you expect, and, and what kind of database maintains all that? Did you use a commercial database like Oracle, or did you roll your own to handle that much data? Every night, um, there's 20 terabytes of, of data that <laughs> Every um, night, yeah, and and you know, to, to some of your listeners, that might not seem that big. You can, and I think Seagate just came out with twenty terabyte drives. So in, in practice, like that's a one disk drive of data. But we do that for ten years, and we do that for you know three hundred thirty days a year. So that's about six petabytes a year, and and that's just the images. And then you have to analyze it and process it and turn it into catalogs. And to ask you a question about the the, the database. Um, we're actually using it's it's a mix. So we're we're using a parallel database that that our team developed, but that's that underneath the base of it is is actually MySQL, uh, believe it or not. Mm. Uh, and um, the, the the reason for that is um, we want to um, uh, first of all our, our kind of cluster of, of of database servers is going to be an order of two hundred of them. Um, we want to be able to to deploy this database and to let others deploy this database as well. And we wanted to really build something on open source technologies there. So then it's it becomes easy for you know, a researcher to, to deploy maybe a smaller subset at their institution rather than um, having to look for uh, either an Oracle license or um, SQL Server license and so forth. And it turned out that, that MySQL is actually good enough. Interesting. So 20 terabytes of data a night, you have to be able to access and do something with that data. I'm curious mm -hmm. about the communications infrastructure from the telescope site back to the U.S. Do you like have a satellite link or uh, I it's a, imagine it, you'd have an OC-192? It's, it's fiber. It's fiber all the way. And it's, uh, it's, it's all leased. 
So the the really this is really interesting to to kind of observe as the project developed. Our original plan was actually to do a lot of processing on site because we thought we weren't going to be able to to move the data upstream mm-hmm. um, quickly enough. And then sometime in early 2010s, uh, there was so much investment in north south connectivity that we could lease. Um, we now have uh, we're going to be leasing 200 gigabit fiber links um, all the way from from Chile, um, from La Serena, where where we are, um, all the way to to uh, to the U.S. Uh, to our uh, primary data center in the U.S. So that means that that's about 10 gigabytes a second on each one of those links. So we can move the entire image. Our, our, our single image is about six or seven gigabytes in less than a second. It's it's quite amazing. Like I couldn't couldn't imagine that maybe 15 years ago. But um, yeah, the the the, the advancement um, of uh, networks and and um, just technology was uh, uh, helped us really much. You mentioned in the description of uh, LSST that you had developed a, a user interface that enables querying and visualization. Pray tell, are Macintosh is any part of that visualization and a part of the uh, data analysis, or what kind of system is, is doing all uh, that number crunching? So the, on the back end, it's uh, it's all Linux, um, and um, you know that that's kind of where where the world is these days. Um, um, if you need to spin up a hundred instances of of some um, on of like a, your your own cluster. Um, it's it's likely going to be running Linux. What about the um, visualization part? The the visualization is mostly driven through web browsers today. So oh. so it it's uh, it's it's all so maybe to explain what our problem is. We have petabytes of data. No one's going to be able to download that. So all almost all of the analysis has to happen close to the data, effectively in our data center remotely. And so we've built this whole environment that enables folks to, to interact, to do visualization, to, to, to write analysis codes, to run them. Everything happens through a web browser. So in that sense, you're, it's, it's completely relevant what the client is running or what the user is running, which, 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 uh, which client computer, as, as long as it runs a web browser. I've been able, I've actually connected a couple of times from the bus from my way to work, uh, from my cell phone, <laughs> using my cell phone. But cool. to, to, to answer your Mac question, um, I think something like 80% of, of, of us and our developers um, are using Macs. It's uh, it's just the, the easiest. Oh, that's the answer I was fishing for. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. So yeah. on, on the back end, it's, it's all Linux, but... Um, yeah, we're we're all in Macs. I'm, I'm speaking uh, to you right now on a, from a 2020 13-inch MacBook Pro. All right, cool. So, what question did I not ask that you want to answer about the LSST? Uh, I think one of the things that are going to be exciting about LSST is that um, a lot of these data are going to be publicly available, and a lot of the data are going to end up in the cloud. Um, and, and I think this opens up opportunities to uh, a lot of, kind of citizen science to be done with it. Um, and a, a lot of the science with LSST is going to be driven by algorithms. You know, can you come up with a clever machine learning algorithm to detect something? Can you come up with an algorithm to discover asteroids? And, and there's a lot of room for kind of 
software amateur astronomers, you know, um, quote unquote. Um, so folks who know software, who are interested in astronomy, um, and who'd like to discover something new. Now, all these data sets that I'm going to be looking at as a professional astronomer are going to be available to them as well. And it's 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 a brave new world with with um, with things that that can be done. Is there a website that explains this, that defines the structure of the data, introduces you to how to connect to it, so that you can sort of get a bootstrap start on how to access the data and start analyzing it? We're we're not we're not quite there yet because the the observatory is still being built. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're trying to build up a lot of the documentation. But if if there's someone out there who's interested, um, they can yeah. Feel free to contact me, and I'll, I'll get them in touch with a research group, and um, um, you know, let's see what we can do. Cool. Well, this has been a fascinating tour of your career and also of the LSST telescope, the Vera Rubin Observatory. Thank you for filling us in on this and answering my tough questions and my dumb questions, <laughs> too. Oh, no, no. Thank you for having me. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk about this. So tell the listeners how they can contact you if they have polite questions and want to learn more. Sure. Um, I think that the easiest way is just to you know, Google my name, so Mario Urich, J-U-R-I-C, um, maybe at University of Washington, um, and uh, my, my email is going to pop up at one of those links. Okay, great. Well, thanks again for joining me. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. <laughs> Thank you, John. Folks, you've been listening to John Martellaro and University of Washington astronomer Dr. Mario Urich, and you've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week.